Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we're on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back with part two of Beauty and the Beast. In part one, we talked all about how you can find yourself as a leader in a small world with the edges of the container in sight all around you, just like Belle, just dreaming of a bigger world. Now in part two, we're going to compare and contrast Gaston and the Beast. Both find themselves in a similar position to start. They're both converging, Gaston on Belle, trying to marry her, he has a single focus. Beast on Belle, eventually. <laughs> he has a single focus, but again, it's for his own purpose just so that he can transform himself back into a human. But the funny thing is that both of them in their lives are really given a big world to start with. We know that originally the Beast is the leader of a faction. He has this huge castle and he has these resources. Gaston is kind of the highest up person that we see in the society in this French town. Gaston is big and strong, he's handsome, he's smart, but he's empty inside. And so both of them have these big worlds, but they're making it small on themselves. And we don't want to lose focus on Wonder Tour by comparing ourselves too much to Belle, because we know that we all fall sometimes, and we all sometimes also act a little bit like Beast and Gaston. We want to use this opportunity to talk about how we can break ourselves out of the small world, not just like we talked about in part one, to prepare ourselves for when we eventually get into a bigger world as emerging leaders, but really, how do we break out of that small world mindset that we find ourselves in? Welcome to Wonder Tour. I'm Brian, happy to be back here with Drew again for another episode. So yeah, let's talk about The Beast and Gaston. So this is fabulous big picture fairy tale storytelling, right? In the setup, we get the the fundamental punchline, right? That the prince cannot distinguish between external beauty and internal character, right? And so he gets cursed with terrible external beauty so that everybody else that has the same feeling that he has will resent and despise him. And he's doomed to live in this now brooding and gothic castle. All of his all of his friends, all of his advisors, all of the people that he lives with are likewise cursed because he is lacking in compassion, because he is unable to recognize that something that isn't beautiful may have value. And so he has this, you know, the enchantress kind of puts this on him. Sidebar. Seems a little harsh since it, from the chronology of the story, apparently he was 11 years old when this curse came down. So you can almost view this as sort of a parenting analogy where the enchantress is recognizing that he needs to grow up into a magnanimous leader and he's not on that path yet. Gaston, by contrast, is very physically appealing. Like that's his main attraction is that he's he's quite handsome and quite large and quite strong and quite good at things. And he's rewarded and celebrated for that. And so he has no reason to question his character. He has no reason to question the way that he sees the world. But the way it's set up, what we see from the two of them at the first part of the movie they have very similar characters. They're acting in basically the same way. They're both very shallow. The prince rejects the enchantress because she's ugly. Gaston pursues Belle because she's beautiful. They're both prone to fits of temper. They're both physically and emotionally abusive to everybody around them. They're both completely focused on keeping bad things from happening and making good things happen for themselves. They're focused on controlling, right? 
They're the type of managers or leaders that have a fixed agenda and they don't really deviate from that agenda. When somebody comes in who throws a wrench in that agenda, their immediate response is basically, okay, how do we get rid of this person? How do we clear this person out? How do we get this person? How do we get Maurice thrown in the loony bin? How do we, <laughs> he's keeping me from getting my objective, which is Val. So we got to get rid of him. And the beast, exactly the same way. He's like, okay, I got to get turned back into a human. So I got to utilize Bell in order to get turned back into a human. Right. And so we see that they, you know, even in the very beginning, right, the way that they're acting, the beast, I almost want to make an analogy back to the uh, the Pattinson Batman, right? <laughs> Where he's just, he's not acting out of love at all. He's purely acting out of fear. He's purely acting out of resentment. So he's trying to solve this problem. Like he wants to get out of this beast mode. He wants to get out of this castle. But when Maurice comes in, he's like, oh, this person is new and therefore must be threatening for me and therefore must be thrown in prison, right? Like he doesn't have any other insight into into other people's character other than to assume that they must be negative influences. He's spiraling downward. Like there's no way out of the big world for him. He's almost given up. Like who could ever love a beast? Beast finds himself in a pit of self-pity, basically. Right. Bad things have happened, and he's convinced that bad things will just continue happening, and something magical might need to happen, but he just, he can't, you know, like, he knows that there's supposed to be a path out, but he can't envision it. He's angry Guess at the, the world, and that's okay to find yourself in that spot sometimes. We want to, again, it's not ideal to find ourselves in that spot, but... I think we can all, to more or less of an extent, probably point to a time in our life when we were angry at the world. You know, we didn't understand why things were the way that they were. We didn't see a way out. And so we just slowly, your gaze goes from looking at the horizon to looking down, down, down at your feet. And you lose, you lose motivation, you lose dreams, and you start to become bitter. But when you're a leader, it's not just you that gets affected, right? So the Beast is in a situation where he's got people that depend on him, that have been cursed with him, and they're, like we talked about last time, they're still acting out of hope. They're still acting out of compassion. Maurice comes into the castle, they let him in, they give him a blanket, they warm him up, they bring him some tea, they let him pet the dog, like they're trying to make him comfortable. They're trying to be compassionate. And he squashes it out of fear. You know, this is a bad thing. Somebody could come, they could mess up. They could, you know, they're coming to yell at me like he's he's so ashamed of himself. He's bought into the fact that because he's ugly, he's not good, that he can't extend that compassion. And he actually rejects the advice and the compassion displayed by the people with him. That's his way of being locked into the small world. Gaston's way of being locked into the small world is he's very successful in the small world and doesn't really aspire to anything else. Like as far as he's concerned, like he's a big fish in a little pond and that's a good deal. So he just wants to lean into it. But we don't have the sense that everybody in that town is kind of selfish and vain. That's especially his gig. Many of the townspeople seem warm and compassionate, but he doesn't have the enchantress in his life. He doesn't have a parent figure challenging him to become better. And so he just doesn't like he just leans into just being as as much into himself as he possibly can. And so he has very little chance of growth. He's completely lost any hope of a growth mindset at that point. He has such a fixed mindset. Every object in his universe is fixed to a XYZ coordinate around him, and he doesn't see any potential for it to move until he runs across Maurice and Bell. Even then, he still has a fixed mindset because he still leaves every other variable fixed in his world except for those two, and he just tries to control those two and converge them on the point that he needs in time where okay, if we can just get Bell to this point, then I can be saved and blah, 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 blah. But what he doesn't realize is that the curse was never about him. It was about other people. <laughs> right. And that's the the challenge that both of them have. You know, there's, there's a, you know, the beast is cursed because he doesn't have insight or compassion for other people. 
Gaston is, you know, gets into trouble in this movie because he wants something, but he wants something from Belle and he can't digest the fact that she has her own needs, that she has her own thoughts, that she has her own goals. And so he's, you know, so he's unsuccessful with that. That makes him very frustrated. And so he's suffered a loss by not being able to see into other people. And so that puts everybody at, at loggerheads. But Gaston's not, he's not initially desperate. You know, he's looking for something and he kind of gets more and more focused on it just because he's used to getting his way. But the Beast has a time, has a, has a time limit. <laughs> he has to get something done. Well, let's stop for a minute here. I want to talk about Gaston. Let's, let's make our kind of maybe main discussion in this episode about Gaston. So I want to start by trying to personalize Gaston a little bit because it's easy to view Gaston in this movie as a caricature. And I mean, he is a caricature, so that's fine. But I don't want to stray too far away from the Wonder Tour narrative, which is that we can see ourselves in all of these characters. And as a wanderer, I will speak only from my personal experience. People will have different backgrounds and different ways that you found yourself into this community and into this journey. But for me, a lot of times things go pretty easily, right? Just due to the way that I was brought up, the resources that I have access to and stuff like that. Sometimes things just come pretty easily and you can really find yourself being guest on where you're like, okay, I understand how this works. Like I know how to solve this problem. I know how to solve this project. And you just start to converge on a solution and just drive towards it. You're like, okay, I can see the end. You know, I just need to marry Belle here and we'll live happily ever after. And that's how this movie's going to end. When in reality, the movie isn't about that. It isn't about you marrying Belle. You know, maybe that might happen, you know, as a secondary effect, but really the story is about the other people. It's about, again, they're not centered. They're, they're faceless basically here, the townsfolk. But the counterpart to the townsfolk is the servants in the castle. And these are the people that this story is actually about. And the story just happens to run through Belle and Gaston and Beast. That is the hardest thing to grasp, I think, some days. I'm here. I'm me. I only can experience my thoughts. And yet, if we subscribe to this way of thinking that we have on Wonder Tour, it's not about me. It's about other people. And yet, I'm the only one who can do anything about it. <laughs> You know, in my world, I'm the only one who can do anything to help other people. But the flip side of the paradox is it isn't about me, though. Well, yeah, I love that you brought that in. So let's let's drill into that a little bit. Maybe let's use this as an axis for our what if. So Gaston and the Beast both have, you know, challenges and frustrations. They're both sort of locked into their small world. They both have people around them. But the Beast's people, the Beast's team, his underlings are much higher quality, right? They're hopeful. They're imaginative. They're compassionate. They are pushing him to be better. What if Gaston had that? Like Gaston doesn't have the imperative to change. He's a child of privilege. He's been successful. He's being celebrated. And everybody around him tells him that he's great. So where's his imperative to change? Is it possible that if Gaston had a Lumiere and a Cogsworth and a Mrs. Potts around that he would be able to open up his mind to changing his character or to expanding his map? I mean, it's simple. I think there's many different ways you could take this. But I mean, what if Gaston reads a freaking book? What if instead of throwing the book in the mud, he reads it? <laughs> awesome. Just he's that's what he's lacking is he's lacking that curiosity. And that curiosity is generally the first step towards integrity, compassion in love, these different things that we have created as pillars of Wonder Tour. And I just don't see without having that curiosity that Gaston can make his way to a happy ending here. Now, I'm not saying that his happy ending is necessarily with Belle, even though that's what his dream is. 
But, I mean, he's so laser-focused on his goal that, again, his eyes just fade down from the horizon towards his feet, and eventually he just runs himself right into the ground. It's a classic tale that we all find ourselves in every once in a while where we get so laser-focused on getting that thing or achieving that goal or getting a promotion or whatever that you slowly but surely just you find yourself halfway buried underground. <laughs> No, but I like that with the book, right? Like he's he's rejecting new information. He is so comfortable in his situation. He's so comfortable with his abilities and with his success. You know, he's such a child of privilege that he actually doesn't want to think that the world could be bigger. He's happy that the world is small because that means that he's big, right? Where Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. He is lit he's literally big. Like he's the biggest guy in town. Yeah, his size in proportion to his world, like the smaller the world is, the bigger that, oh, and, and we don't even have to just apply this to Gaston because, right, it's it's just because he's big and his ratio, you know, he'll he'll take up a bigger piece of the container, maybe. Doesn't mean that it's not true of all of us is the smaller the world that you make around you or the world that you can see, the bigger a part of it you are. And isn't that a trap? Right. And this is another reason why the beast is so intolerable to him, right, is that he finds that the beast is out there. Not only is it a competitor for Bell's attention, but the Beast is another large, threatening character in the world, and he wants to be the, the Alpha. But yeah, I love the rejecting information piece, and I love the the idea that he likes keeping his world small because it's working for him. And so that's exactly as you said, if you are in a situation where you're successful, if you are in a situation where you have experienced privilege and you feel like the world's going well for you, it's very easy to say, well, this is probably all the world that I need then, right? You're not forced out of your comfort zone. You don't have a growth imperative. But we all should. Even if we're successful, we all should have a growth imperative. We all should be looking for opportunities to be more magnanimous leaders or to make the world better for people around us. And Gaston's clearly not doing that. So let's contrast it a little bit. Are there some examples in this story where the Beast, despite his, you know, real failings as character, where we see that he's open to change, where we see that he's open to the possibility of redemption? Yeah, let's start with something small, maybe when his servants are washing him in the bathtub. And I love it because visually you get this like mangy Beast who's got, you know, his fur's going every which way, and he looks like he's like a cat in the bath, basically. He's like, Rrr! But he is actually open to advice at this point from his servants, right? He's asking them for, or I don't even remember if he's asking or if he's just accepting advice to some extent on how to work with Bell. But he is accepting new information and that maybe his view of the world is not the only view of the world. Well, and even, you know, even Bell. Whether it's her physical beauty or her act of compassion in trading herself for Maurice, that's a shock to his system, right? She shows up. He reacts the same way to her that he does to Maurice. Why are you here? You know, you're you're clearly bad. And she's like, oh, take me instead. And you can just hear his voice like, you would do that? This blows up his world a little bit. And so he responds by, well, you don't want to sleep in the tower, do you? Come on, let's get you a bedroom. <laughs> like, you know, and so it starts to spiral up, right? He responds to that act of compassion with not overwhelming compassion, but with at least a small kindness. And then as he starts to embrace the situation, exactly like you said, he starts to listen to the people around him because he does want a way out. He does want to get back to the bigger world. He does want to be successful. And then 
as we start to get through this story, he starts to make decisions that aren't about himself, right? His his initial interactions with her are being nice to her because he needs a woman to break the spell and because, you know, she's she's very attractive. But as we get into it, we see him starting to make decisions that are purely based on, like, what would she like? How can I do something to take care of her? And so we see that over and over again with the library, with the going out to rescue her in the woods, even after she's run away from him. And then, of course, finally, with the ultimate redemption act of giving up on what he thinks is his chance to let her go. We got to get to that point here in this contrast, because that is the twin peak to Belle's moment where she gives up her freedom. Potentially, she could run away and let the beast die, essentially, that we talked about in part one. But instead, she cares for him and picks him up. The flip side of that is when they look in the mirror and Belle can see that Maurice is in danger from Gaston and Beast, despite, you know, that he can see that the rose, the petals are falling off of it. He makes the decision to let her go. And I think if we're talking this episode about how do we make the small world bigger, what you said a few minutes ago, Brian, to me is the number one tactic and it's shocking the system. And that shocking the system can look so differently depending on the situation. The most impactful, profound, but also energy intensive shock to the system is sacrifice. And that's why sacrifice is such an important part of the hero's journey and an important part of human <laughs> humans as a whole. But there are other ways that we can shock the system as well. And I think that Bell and Beast and some of the other denizens of the castle also show us a couple of other tactics that they use other than just shocking the system in order to make the small world bigger. All right. So I think that's our, you know, like you said, that's the second big moment here is the moment where Beast decides to let her go. Of course, this is a Disney movie. It's a fairy tale. This is not subtle. This message is supposed to be in the movie. It's not like sort of a side benefit, like it's kind of the whole point. But it's still nonetheless effective and nonetheless true, right? Where he gets to the point where he is now, his character is filled out and he understands what is required to actually have compassion for someone else is to put them first. And her initial action doing that resonates down through the movie and kind of unlocks this piece for him. Maybe let's talk about how do we get to this point, because we've mentioned it a number of times in the past couple of minutes, but there's smaller system shocks that are going on and they're increasing in magnitude each time, basically, right? Belle has that original shock to the system where she offers herself in place of Maurice. And then they have these progressive shocks to the system, essentially, that build up this relationship between Belle and Beast and also the servants in the castle, eventually leading up to these dueling peaks where Belle initiates the massive system shock through her sacrifice and her giving up of control, which we know is natural to Belle's character because she has that magnanimous character already. She's really bringing that into the narrative. To some extent, her scope grows, but her character is pretty consistent throughout. She's already got a lot of the characters she needs to pass the test that she's given, but Beast does not. Beast requires the first couple shocks to the system before he starts to understand, how do I make the world big again? And the ending point of making the world big again is actually being transformed back into a human, but the mindset of making the world big again the slowly taking his eyes and moving them upwards towards the horizon line, that's what we're trying to get the beast to be able to do because that's the curse. That's breaking the curse. He has to first look up, look around at the people next to him, realize it's not about me, realize it's not about holding on to control. 
and then you can break out of it. And this is not a, how to say this, this is not a recipe for leadership. System shock is a wisdom thing. I have seen the best leaders figure out the most innovative ways to shock the system. And I have been in awe so many times. Sometimes it's a single moment. We've talked about these watershed moments. It could be a one-on-one -on -one conversation where somebody says something to you that you simply can't believe or does something to you that just shakes your world loose of that fixed mindset and makes you think, oh, wow, maybe I need to do that for somebody else. And then it can be so as big as what we saw here, where, you know, obviously, like the whole world is at stake and everybody's going to die or everybody's going to get trapped in their current situation if we don't see Bell and Beast make the change. That's great. I love the system shock. As a leader, you can look for the opportunities, even if you're not in the leadership role. Like, There's no way in which Bell standing in front of the cell in the tower, there's no way in which she's in a leadership role, right? She is, she is completely vulnerable. But she deploys the system shock anyway, and it works, which is interesting because Gaston gets the same system shock. He's like, of course, I'm the most handsome guy in town. Of course, I'm going to marry this woman. Of course, she's going to say yes. And she says no. And he responds to that system shock by doubling down on his understanding of the world. It's like, oh, well, no, I'm going to force this to happen. Like he's not open to the idea that he would need to reevaluate his map. So that the idea of being open to those things as like, oh, this thing just happened that doesn't match the data, I can call it an outlier and I can ignore it. I can go try to delete it from the map, like I can try to squash it down until it's consistent, or I can possibly have to revise my understanding of reality. I have to factor that in and that might require me to, might force me to grow. And that's a thing that Bell administers these shocks. The beast at least is open to the idea that the surprise was because he misunderstood something. Gaston's not. Gaston means surprise means you misunderstood something and you're not behaving the way you're supposed to. Is it fair to, I'm going to theorize here. I said that the primary means of kind of manufacturing or progressing from a small world to a big world, or like the best means, the most impactful means is the system shock. Maybe as I'm thinking about it, Again, this is not science. This is more kind of human psychology, but is the only means a system shock <laughs> to some extent? I'm not it doesn't have to be a system shock of these huge proportions. It can be a tiny system shock, but in a way is the only means of humans changing trajectory, changing our mental maps of reality, a system shock. Well, um, so the word that I want to use in this context is enlightenment. And not necessarily like big enlightenment, like uh, congratulations, you're a Buddha, you've transcended the world, right? But little e enlightenment in that consciousness is often punctuated equilibrium, where you have a state of mind, you have an understanding of the world, you get this nagging feeling that maybe it's not complete, that there's something that isn't quite right or something that you're missing. And then you have these moments of new awareness where some new piece of information or some disruption, like you say, a system shock. I'm going to say that's certainly in my experience, that's much more common. I don't I don't learn in a linear fashion, certainly not emotional learning. It's not a steady progress of growth. It's like a am the same person and I get progressively more dissatisfied with my state of capability and then something gets unlocked. And this is 100 percent true in like even more mechanical learning, like playing a musical instrument. You'll learn to do a new thing and you'll be pretty excited about it and you'll get good at it and you'll have that level of capability for a while, a week or a month or a year. And eventually you'll be like, this kind of stinks. Like, ah, I'm terrible. Like, I can't believe how bad I am. I can't believe I can't do the things that I can hear in my head. 
and then you'll wake up and pick up an instrument and like, oh, I'm there. Oh, I get it now. And you'll unlock the next level, right? The reason that video game levels work so well for us as an analogy is because that's kind of how we go through these stair-step growth factions. So I think the system shock is a really good way to think about recognizing what is the inciting event that gets you to that new state of understanding or gets you to that new state of maturity. And jumping to business just for a second here, a system shock in business is more or less the only way towards <laughs> towards like truly transformational change. There is no transformational change without a system shock in business, because as we have seen played out over all of time, basically, <laughs> groups of people working together will get very complacent as long as things continue to operate OK. There's no way you're going to change your business model until the external environment does something to you, or there's no way you're going to change your business model until somebody has a limit-breaking innovation at the grassroots level in your team or something like that, right? There's no way you're going to change trajectory unless one of your top leadership comes in with a new vision of reality, what reality could be. And that vision is reality shaking and says, oh, wow, maybe this whole time what we've been aspiring to isn't it or it's changed. The vision has changed. Yeah, I'll go a step further. I, I agree with you, except that I think the classic innovator's dilemma is that many organizations won't respond even then, right? You know, the inertia of an organization, the especially something that's big enough to have a middle management class, right? The middle management's entire job is to ensure continuity, is to, we, we were good at the things that we did before, that's why we got promoted, so now we're going to make sure that we don't screw it up by changing, right? So... Again, as a leader, you may have to institute a system shock like a reorg, like new assignments, like substantially changing the workflow process or something to be able to get over the hump because it's very difficult for a company that was successful, that was Gaston, it's very difficult for that company to make the transition or an organization or a group to make a transition to a completely new way of behaving without both an external imperative to change and some internal disruption that forces those new behaviors to emerge. Yeah, you're absolutely right. As much as it's hard to change as an individual, it's harder to change as a group. So much harder to change as a group. Once you get the momentum and the adoption, it's easier to change as a group because the culture has a like a wave that kind of comes through it. And, you know, you either catch the wave or you don't and you get left out. There's like a peak of energy within a group that it's so hard to create that sort of a gate, as we said in the in the Stranger Things episode, in order to create that transformational change, you almost have to have like a gate that transcends dimensions. And there's so much energy that goes into that gate. Whereas as a human, you don't necessarily need a gate. Um, the most, again, unfortunately, probably the most effective way of change is pain or sacrifice or death or things like that. That's probably the most effective way to get humans to change course. But it's not the only way. Like you said, there are more iterative ways of changing. The odds of their effectiveness or success are a little bit lower or maybe a lot lower, I would say, compared to having that complete shock to the system. Right. But either way, there's a bunch of fun fairy tale morality out of this movie. Right. But one of the things that it's trying to tell us is that you have to be hopeful. You have to be looking for something better to have any chance at achieving something better. And so this just occurred to me was, I was as we were kind of prepping for this trying to think about what to do with the different characters, like Maurice's character, Belle's father, his primary role in the movie is to get in trouble so that she has to bail him out. He's, he's, he moves the plot forward by getting, by getting in trouble in various ways, like three different times through the movie she has to bail him out. And so that was like, oh, okay, that's not a very interesting character. You know, he's a piece of the plot. It is kind of cool that they position him as an inventor, 
her character is obviously derived from his and his worldview is new things can exist that didn't exist before and they'll make life better, right? And that if he had been a pig farmer or a baker or something else that was kind of maintaining the status quo, it would have been a very different message, even if he was a little bit of an outcast. Like the reason that he's an outcast is because he's dreaming of the big world all the time. Like he believes that there's a new big world out there and Bell has completely internalized that. And that's what underpins her ability to break everybody else out of the small world. It's Cooper and Murph. (laughs) It's absolutely Cooper and Murph. Maurice is Cooper and he goes out and he gets in trouble in an attempt to make the world a little bit larger. And in the end, Murph is the one who has to come in and save the day. But it's only those two father and daughter working together that are able to essentially create the they're they're the interlopers it's those two working together as the interlopers that are able to save the world (laughs) yep yep and it all starts with believing that there's a bigger world believing that the world can be saved right yeah so they have a belief that nobody else has basically everybody else is content with this small world perspective it's basically just them who are saying but what if there's a bigger world and then they find these two small worlds you know one that they come from one that they stumble upon and they try to expand them both into one big world essentially they try to incorporate and integrate them and it's that trying to integrate those two realities into a whole that causes a lot of the conflict here as the uh, denizens of one reality and the other reality find themselves navel-gazing and in conflict with each other. But that's why Belle gets along so well with the residents of the castle, right? It's because she finds another tribe that's dreaming of the bigger world that is hopeful, right? So that's, you know, in classic Disney fashion, right? That's the fundamental elements are just always there, right? You have to act out of love and you have to view the world with hope. And you can easily identify who are the protagonists and the antagonists and who's likely to succeed in the end on that basis. But it's also the only way forward. You will not ever get out of the small world if you're satisfied with the small world or if you're trying to protect the small world and keep from losing the things that you have. You will never grow. And if we integrate part one and part two here together, it forms this great magnanimous character lesson. In part one, we talked about how to prepare for the world to grow around us, because as humans, we're never going to have a full grasp on the universe and our world, our boundaries are always growing in terms of our knowledge and wisdom. So no matter where we're at in our journey, there's always more to grow. There's always this need to prepare our character to be able to handle the larger and larger influence and information and responsibility. And then in part two, now we've talked about, okay, well, when you find yourself in a culture, a community, or even just individually in a state where you've got this small world, now how do we actually expand out that small world? We've prepped our character like Belle. Now we need to expand our world like Belle, like Beast, and like the servants in the castle. And I think our primary lesson, at least in this story, is a system shock is an incredibly effective means to be able to make that transformation. I got to bring it up. I brought it up like five times before on Wonder Tour, but my favorite quote of all time, I'm just going to pick a small piece of it here. C.S. Lewis, this principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose yourself and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. It's unbelievable, that quote. He's a master wordsmith. (laughs) Oh, I love it. That's great. And we see that through and through here, right? We see Bell as the emerging leader 
dreaming, being open to the bigger world, trying to gain information, trying to expand her map, but being hopeful. And then we see the examples of ways to behave and not behave as the established leader with the challenges. But the punchline is basically exactly as you said. It's not about you. (laughs) It's not about you. Listen to the people around you. Empower the ones who are hopeful. Empower the ones who are compassionate. Be open to the system shock. If you're dissatisfied with your world, look for the facts that don't jive with your world and drill into them and find what do they reveal about the larger world. Always, in every situation, act out of compassion and hope. That sounds pretty Disney to me. Yeah, this was a wonderful dive into one of Disney's classic animated films. Thank you, Brian. I'll let you close us out. Next week, I think we are looking forward to the return of our friend Derek and into diving deeper into another more modern but equally compelling uh, female hero. We're going to be looking at the Star Wars Episode 7. I love it. We've talked about Rey before, but I know not everybody's the biggest fan of the sequel trilogy. I think there's a lot to love there, and I think Rey is probably the high point. It's an incredibly Star Wars-y Star Wars movie, so we're going to have a lot of fun with that one as well. All right. Well, thanks so much. Pleasure as always. And thank you all for listening. Just remember, as always, character is destiny. Destiny.